you, sir. Oh, it's not on my, is this thing on? Literally, it's not on. All right, better? All right, well, good morning, friends. It's the end of October. We are nice and warm. We've all, we're all warmed up for the message. I sh- my comedy is not as good as the announcement team, but um, time is, it's all about the timing. So we're in this series on um, Belong. We are walking through the book of Mark, the early chapters of Mark. Um, and today we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. So if you would like to go ahead and turn there, you may, starting in verse 20, but we have been looking at the kingdom of God, and today uh, we're looking at a really interesting passage and really leaning a little more into this idea of belonging. And so as you turn in your Bible, as I know you are, um, your presence here today, thank you for your kindness. We just ask that as we open your word that you would settle on each one of us, Holy Spirit, that you would stay near, you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Show us anything that you want to show us today. Open our hearts. We say yes, we are ready. Amen. Let's just dive right in. Mark 3, starting in verse 20. And then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, They went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. And then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. And then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother? Those seated in a circle, he asked. Here, those seated in a circle, brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What an interesting passage today. And the first thing that I want us to notice is that it starts out with two very distinct groups of people making pretty bold, pretty personal statements about Jesus. We've got the family, and then we've got the religious people. And it's interesting, immediately I'm wondering what is going on Although two very different groups, they seem to both be quite anxious, perhaps, about what they're concerned is going to happen or what they're concerned is not happening. And so I'm thinking even from the very top, we're looking at two very interesting groups of humans, and even the best human intentions are still intentions, which brings me to the family. Um, See what I did there? Uh, 
Jesus family. We all have a family. We're going to talk a little bit more about family later. But we open our passage with Jesus' family commenting that he is out of his mind. That is awesome. He's surrounded by crowds. It says he doesn't even have time to eat. And so I'm wondering, from the perspective of Jesus' family, perhaps they're concerned about his health and safety. He's not taking care of himself. Although, actually, we know that he is. He is, he is leaning into rhythms of rest, meeting with the Father, getting away. But what they see with their eyes is that maybe he's not taking care of himself. Maybe they're concerned for his health and safety. Maybe the family name is on the line or his reputation. Or maybe they're concerned about his well-being because he's getting himself in these interesting predicaments. He's casting out demons. He's mixing with all kinds of people. So the family is concerned, and we can only imagine exactly what the motivation was. We don't assume that his family is against him, yet there is definitely a lack of understanding of the situation, missing something to the family, because the passage starts with the family, but then there's this sort of interesting middle section where Jesus is dealing with the religious leaders. It says that they have come from Jerusalem, so they have traveled here, and they are not happy. In fact, they claim that Jesus is possessed by demons, that he is partnering with the enemy to perform signs and wonders. And if you've been here in this series for a while, you will recall that we've already seen him accused of blasphemy. They've already questioned his authority. They have deeply disapproved of his company, They have accused Jesus of breaking the law, and in fact, last week, they were plotting to kill him. So at this point, I don't assume good intentions. I assume that these guys are just blind with rage. They are wound up to the max. And now they are using some pretty bold language. And it's interesting to me that Jesus is not typically in the habit of defending himself, but there's something here that he feels very, he feels the need to speak into it. He engages their accusation and sets the record straight about who he is. On a a very base level, he starts out just with sort of the logical thing, like, guys, if I were the devil and I were casting out demons, I would be working against myself. It doesn't even make sense. First of all, what you're saying doesn't make sense. Have you ever engaged with someone, maybe a young person, maybe someone who just acts like a young person, and what they're saying doesn't actually make sense, but they're just mad? And so Jesus is like, first of all, that which you are saying doesn't actually make sense. If I'm working with the devil, then I'm basically like messing with myself. But then he goes into this additional explanation, and he, he's, he gives what a lot of scholars actually would, would call a riddle. Terrible, but a riddle. He gives there about, about the strong man in the house. It doesn't mean, and, and so if you want to go home and, and exercise your curiosity, read up on it. It's an interesting thing. But what I'll say about this, the idea with the strong man, is that it is pointing us back to the person and the work of Jesus. As Brandon reminded us last week, there is no enemy ground that is unreachable by Jesus. And he is in the business of rescuing back all that has been taken. If we recall from John 10.10, it says that the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. But Jesus has come that we may have life 
and that we may have it to the full. The enemy of our souls is set on destruction. He is set on destroying the image of God on this earth. He wreaks havoc for God's created ones. And Jesus has come to set things right. Each one of us, each one of our families and communities, our cities and the earth itself. Jesus is a rescuer. Not by force, but by humility, by kindness, and by love. He is lovingly restoring us to the original intent. If we look back again to the garden, he is lovingly restoring us. I imagine him coming in like, I don't watch a lot of action movies. My movie selection is about this big. If it's not Anne of Green Gables or Sleepless in Seattle, I probably haven't seen it. But, um, you know, I've seen trailers. You know, like someone comes in and it like breaks down the house and it's like, ah. Actually, I don't see Jesus as that person. I see Jesus as the one who comes in after and leans down to the hostages and lovingly ties the ropes and sets them free. He sets the house back, restoring us to that which he originally dreamt for us. To live secure. To know that we are seen and not observed. To know that we are loved to freely exercise dominion, to be creative, to work the earth, to flourish in that which we put our hands to. That was the original intent. And he is lovingly restoring all of us to that place. And so where the enemy has taken on ground, where the enemy has come and ransacked, where the enemy is wreaking havoc in your life or in your community or in your workplace or even in our world, Jesus is restoring. Jesus is pulling back, calling back, making all things right. I feel an importance that Jesus puts on this conversation. The religious guys use some very extreme language, and so did Jesus. But what he knew and saw in their hearts was that they were absolutely set against God, against his love, against his rescue, and his mission on the earth. They would not accept it when the truth confronted them. They actually went as far as to attribute his work to the enemy. This was a willful decision to continue down a path that destroyed their own souls and the souls of those around them. Trading a life in the kingdom for the life of self-preservation. Today, but, but think about... The rich young ruler, if you know this story in the Gospels, this, this young guy came to Jesus and he says, hey, I've done all the things, what can I do? And Jesus says, neat, love it, welcome, um, go sell all of your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come back. And the young guy says, I can't do it, and he walks away. Well, then we have the example of Peter. Peter denies Jesus three times. Major bad thing, but he is welcomed back because he turns his heart back toward Jesus again, and Jesus says, come on back. There's reconciliation. There's a place at the table for him. It's always a choice, and these religious people whose hearts are hard are making their choice clear. That is a path. 
But what we see here is that it is not the only path. And so as we circle back to where we began, Jesus addresses this question of family. I can picture the scene in my mind. They're like, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are out there, you know, like a middle school carpool or something. It's like, come on, Jesus, your mom's here. And the answer that he gives is a very fascinating insight into the nature of the kingdom. He says that anyone who does God's will is his family. He's like, you say my family's out there. Actually, you're all my family. And what he is not saying here is that he doesn't care about his mom and his brothers and his natural family. In fact, we know that he loves them dearly. His mom is there at the crucifixion. He makes special care to know that she will be okay when he's gone. He is not not caring about his natural family, but he is recognizing that with the inbreaking of the kingdom on this earth, a new type of family is being created. He is expanding the definition. He is redefining of Jesus. We are taking on a different way of being on this earth. We've used the term other cultural many times here. We are an other culture walking the earth. We are these odd future people who are living in the present. We are bound up by a common hope. We are living between these two spaces. Who else could understand this odd shared experience but the family of God? In his book, Breakthrough, which I've referenced before here, um, Derek Morphew says this, the kingdom is something mysterious, here, almost here, delayed in future. Not only is the Christian life placed within this context, but the very nature of the Christian life finds its meaning within this context. We are here, almost here, delayed future people. We are saved being saved and will be saved. We are holy being made holy and will be holy. We live between the times. We are already not yet people. Two ages coexist within us and we live simultaneously in two ages. The world around us lives in one age, one dimension, but we are much more mysterious. We live in two ages. We are becoming what we already are. We are born out of the powers of the future age. We have eternal life, the life of the future ages. This is not simply a theological construct. This is not simply a theological construct, but a lived experience. Members of God's family are not determined by external criteria, but rather those who are on this journey, those who have yet said yes to Jesus, who are living this experience together, this interesting, in-between, mysterious existence that we have said yes to, those are the members of God's family, all who have turned their hearts toward him. And we remember that those who don't belong with any standalized, the weak in this world, but seat at the table kingdom, ones who get it the most. If you recall from last week, Jesus' listeners were living under Roman occupation. Jesus came to the powerless and to the oppressed, and he still does. We've been chatting about this theme of belonging, and some of you engaged in a, in a fun new activity, a fun-tivity, if you will, that we did recently called Family Meal. And in our groups, we discussed around the table this idea of belonging. Where have you in your life experienced a sense of belonging? 
maybe it was on a team or in a student group or at a workplace or a very specific group of friends. Maybe you lived with some roommates and you felt a deep sense of belonging there. For many, it would be some type of faith experience, a, a small group, a missions trip or something like that. But where have each of us experienced a sense of belonging? For some, it's a tough question. And for some, we have to go way, way, way back in our memory bank to even find an answer. Experts are saying today that we are living in a new pandemic, not COVID 6.0, but a pandemic of loneliness. It's, it's everywhere in our culture and society today, and it is in this room as well. The, eni- the enemy of our soul loves nothing more than to isolate us, making us believe the lie that we're on our own, that we are unseen, that everyone else seems to have it together, that somehow we don't belong anywhere. I heard a talk recently about this idea of of the expressive individualism of our time. And essentially, if I boil it down to a nutshell and probably butcher what the speaker said, it's this idea of oneself. This pressure in our culture ends up being today to look within a place to be. But as kingdom people, we are not looking inside of ourselves to define ourselves, but rather we are defined by the person and the work of Jesus. We're not becoming clones, like I talked about a couple weeks ago. This is not a Coca-Cola factory. But rather, we are living as unique children of God, each with a sense of place, coming from the same family, yet reflecting the image of God in a unique way. I was in a space this week, which I'm not often, where I was with my sister, who lives here in town, with a bunch of her work colleagues, and they were like, wait, you remind me of you. It's like, we're family, two very different iterations, but you can absolutely tell that we sprout from the same tree. This This is the kingdom of God. This is the family that God is creating. There is a common DNA. There is a lived experience that all of us share, but it's going to look and feel and smell and taste different for each one of us, which is the beauty of the kingdom. The very good news of the kingdom of God is not simply that you get a ticket to heaven, but rather that heaven is breaking into the earth now, and you can belong now. For those who feel misunderstood, misplaced, misrepresented, in the kingdom, you make sense. You fit. You are just where you need to be. For all who are lonely, you are seen. You are deeply loved, and you belong. Our families on this earth, whether amazingly beautiful, totally dysfunctional, or somewhere in between, which is probably where a lot of families fall, were never meant to be our primary place of security and identity. Family is important. Family determines so much of our identity, our sense of place, who we are. Do we have family there? Do we have straight hair? Do we have eyes? Do we have blue eyes? Awesome family. Maybe you still have an awesome family. Maybe you didn't. Maybe family is a really tough concept for you. You may not even like that I'm talking about it right now. 
Our different experiences in family can lead to deep insecurity and comparison. It can be hard to talk about because why did you get this, you know, Disney upbringing and, and I grew up in a dumpster or something. I don't know. That's very extreme. Never been in a dumpster. But family is important. Family is difficult. Family here on this earth is not the end all because Jesus is creating a new kind of family. In John 1, it says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. In Jesus, we find someone who was deeply secure because he knew who he was, who he belonged to. He had a clear sense of identity. He had a clear sense of place. And that did not come from his natural family of origin, although they loved him. They risked for him. They gave up much for him. They, they were, I think, an important part of his existence on this earth, but his identity and his security did not come from them. And this is very good news, especially for those who perhaps don't have a family or your family is non-traditional. As I said before, sometimes these, the weak, the powerless, the oppressed, the underrepresented have a way of seeing and understanding the kingdom that can be lost on some who have more privilege, who have more power. Honestly, I think the same is true here. For those who struggle with a sense of family, this little on this earth, sometimes the family ones who get it the most. God is inviting us, each one, to find security and identity in his family, to locate ourselves in his kingdom. That was the example, the example of Jesus who walked on this earth, who was, I have to remind you, a 30-something single male, a unicorn, if you will. But... His identity and security was firmly planted in the identity that his father spoke to him. I think this is important for us today. It's important for me today. As, as, a, as someone who falls strongly in the category of non-traditional situation, 41 years old, not married, no children, my family is God's family. My family is you. No pressure. <laughs> you better invite me to Thanksgiving. Just kidding. Um, I don't have it all figured out. This is, an, this is an interesting concept to me, but I will say that there is an invitation, and I say that because I, I know the invitation myself. I have lived the invitation. There is an invitation to lean into the family of God, and that doesn't just mean to like read your Bible more and you're going to feel connected. That's, that's flesh and bones people coming around you who may not be your natural family, who may not share your awesome sense of humor and out-of-control hair, but they have become your family, your chosen family, because they are also living this wild and mysterious, strange and beautiful journey into the kingdom of God. And you take hands and you walk there together. And there are those of you here who have the very traditional family. You have two and a half kids and a dog and, you know, a nice McMansion. There's room for you too in the kingdom. Don't worry. 
But I wonder what God's invitation might be for some of you. Again, beautiful and wonderful, intense focus on your new family that God has given you. That family is a blessing. That is a place of life and joy. But what if God wanted to expand that a little? What if there were others who could be in that family? What if there were others who need a seat at the table and you happen to have an open chair? We belong to Jesus, and we also belong to each other. This is the beauty of the family that God is building. Belonging in the kingdom does not mean that we are in an exclusive clique. We have not joined a country club, guys. We have joined a search and rescue team. I was remembering this week, and I don't know who coined the phrase, so whoever is out there definitely listening to this sermon. If you coin the phrase, I give you credit. But I've heard a lot around the vineyard and around vineyard conferences. We are worshipers of God and rescuers of people. And I like that. We are worshipers of God and we are rescuers of people. As we find our own place of belonging, we live lives of gratitude, lives of worship. We move toward God in intimacy and in truth and vulnerability and connection. But we also become partners in kingdom pursuits, drawing others into the kingdom. A life of belonging is not only an inward journey. But as we belong more and more, as we enter God's family, as we are set free, as we are restored, as those, those things that are binding up our hands that I can't think of the word for, ropes, um, as he unties those and he sets us free and we begin to live more and more as he intended us to live, flourishing, secure, loved, and seen, it becomes a natural outward journey. I must share that which I have found. I want you to also be set free. I want you to come along. You all along. Say yes to the king and the kingdom. We are inviting others. That's just how it naturally goes. And so every act of justice, of reconciliation, of leaning into hard conversations, of changing things in our friend group, and our families, but also in our city, and our society, every act of hospitality... Every time you invite someone to your table, every act of kindness, every act of love, both inside our homes and outside our homes, is an invitation to belong. You are now, you have a handful of invitations, and you get to invite people to belong as well. It is the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but in his kindness, he has invited us in partnership to come along with him. As you find a place to belong, who else needs to belong? I want us to take a moment of reflection, and um, I'm going to invite the team. They can mosey up here at their leisure, but, but I feel like there's probably a few invitations here for us today. And so perhaps if you would, in whatever way is comfortable for you, eyes closed, eyes open, maybe you want to open your hands just in a posture of receiving and saying, I'm open. Let's just take a moment to locate ourselves. To locate ourselves in the loving gaze of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He's here with us now.
And perhaps ask him today, what is your invitation for me? topic of, of loneliness is very um, close. It might feel a little bit vulnerable, and so just in this space as you're comfortable, just bring that before the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You can ask him for what you need. For some of us, it may have been a really long time since we felt a sense of belonging or connectedness. And I see him today taking you by the hand. walking with you. You might be a bit tangled up, tied up. He'll untie those cords. He'll set you right again. For some of us today, he might be redefining the idea of family for you. He might be doing some expanding in you, so let that make yourself available to that. He might be giving you a new perspective or a new way of seeing your own story and your own life. Let him speak to that. Some of us have believed lies for a long time. Lies that we don't belong. That we're not seen, that there's not a space for us. And I think he wants to, um, he wants to touch some of us today in that place. In his kindness to begin to speak a different story to us.
was reminded just now as we were waiting of this verse from Hosea. So I'm going to read it for us, and then we're going to respond in worship. It's from chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. And this is the Lord speaking to Israel. He says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. It was I who taught you to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. As he takes you in his arms today, as he leads you with cords of human kindness and with ties of love, we're going to respond in worship. Feel free to stand.